Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In previous episodes, we talked about Homer and most recently Sappho. This time we're moving forward from 7th century lyric poetry to tragic drama in 5th century Athens. Some of the works of three tragedians have survived the last two and a half thousand years in more or less complete form. We'll be talking about Euripides next time. So today we're focusing on Sophocles, and in particular, predictably enough, on Oedipus Tyrannus and Antigone. To begin, Emily, perhaps you could talk us through the experience, as far as we can recreate it, of what it was like to go to the theatre in, say, 468 BC, which is the year that Sophocles, then in his late 20s, first won first prize at the Festival of Dionysus, defeating Aeschylus, the reigning champion. And put like that, it sounds more like Wimbledon than the old Vic. But what did it, what did it mean to go to the theatre in 5th century Athens? Well, it certainly wasn't like going to the old Vic or, or like going to see a Shakespeare play at Stratford. Um, the Theatre of Dionysus is a huge open-air theatre on the Acropolis in Athens. And Drama in ancient Athens was always performed at um, religious festivals. The festival of Dionysus, the great Dionysia, was one of the biggest and most important civic and religious festivals in the Athenian calendar. The actors would have been all male citizens wearing masks and dressing up in order to sing, dance and act as mostly mythological women and men and gods from the um, traditions of stories about Thebes, stories about the Trojan War, the great mythic cycles. So tragedy was a genre that was always performed in, as you said, these competitive contexts. And there would be three days of tragic competitions at at the Dionysia in which each competitor had to put on not one play, but four plays, three tragedies and a satyr play. A satyr play um, has nothing to do with satire. It's a play focused on the hairy, goatish followers of Dionysus who wore these costumes with huge phalluses and were sort of semi-wild characters who live on the mountains and are liable to rape whoever they they come across. Um, So it was was a, a... sort of light-hearted relief after three tragedies. So I think maybe just focusing also on the fact that Dionysus, the god of this festival, the god associated with this festival, was um, not associated only with drinking, but also with the theatre and with transformations and disguise and the limits between the civilised known world and the wild world. And both tragedy and satyr play sort of deal with the question of what belongs inside the city and what doesn't belong in the city, who belongs in the community, who doesn't. So who was Sophocles when he wasn't writing plays? When and where was he born? If you give us a a quick potted biography of what we know. of The potted biography, yes. I mean, The life of Sophocles, of course, is based on very unreliable late ancient lives, which is the case for all of our ancient poets. Um, None of the evidence is particularly good. Um, But we know that he was born um, very early in the the 5th century, so around 497-ish. He was a teenager when the Athenians defeated the Persians, and he, we're told that he he was appointed to dance the victory song, the paean, in honour of 
the Athenian victory over the Persians in 480. He then became a very, very successful tragic poet, defeating Aeschylus. He defeated Aeschylus both early in his career and then multiple times defeated Aeschylus. He was a prolific playwright uh, who produced, um, who competed in over 30 competitions. So if you remember what I said before, which is that each competition was four plays, which means he must have written, composed, produced over 120 plays. But we also know that he he was appointed to various important role, civic roles in the democratic city of Athens. So including the fact that he was appointed as a one of the 10 generals, which was one of the most important military roles in the city, along with Pericles. And we're told that, 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 that he was given that role as a result of his, his success in putting on the Antigone in the 440s. I forgot to say that he was born in Colonus, which is a province of Athens, and his last play, Oedipus at Colonus, sort of takes us back to Sophocles' birthplace. And it wasn't produced until after his wasn't death. Until in, after his death, for, yes, yeah. exactly. At the but, very end. But of it. he died in what four oh six. So he he would lived for the whole of. He spanned the, the whole first century. century more or less. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But the idea that you'd make someone a general because they'd written such a good play <laughs> seems <laughs> seems a kind of yes, not necessarily a great. Although, although I suppose if you're good at if you're good at choreographing a Greek chorus, maybe you're good at you're good at organising people. You have to have an H, have to have some HR skills, um, and you also have to. I mean, I think. We'll get on to talking about the Antigone, but I think it's, in a way it makes sense that that play shows you something about Sophocles' attunement to questions of what does it mean to be a political leader? What does it mean to have political responsibility towards the city? And that, in fact, both the plays we're focusing on today, Oedipus and Antigone, are both kind of about that question of what, what is political leadership and what is disastrous political leadership as well as good political leadership. And if we sort of move on to the particular plays now, and as you said before that the tragedians often took mythological subjects the seven of the 120 plays that Sophocles wrote the seven that we have still look to the Trojan War and to the myth cycles that told tales of ancient Thebes before the Trojan War back in the time when Theseus was king of Athens if you can talk about mythological time in that way but there wasn't that right the sense that this is Oedipus was before before the Trojan War and I wonder if you could briefly, after the potted biography of Sophocles, briefly tell the story of the, the Theban cycle that, that Oedipus and Antigone form part of. Yes, so, I mean, the Trojan cycle, which Sophocles also wrote a huge, huge number of plays about the Trojan cycle of myths. Um, he was called in antiquity the most Homeric, which may be partly because we're told that roughly a third of his total output was focused on Troy rather than on Thebes and the various other areas of Greek myth. But the the ones we have are primarily, um, many of them, many, some, not, not all of them, but many of them are, are focused on Thebes. Thebes is a real-life historical city which really existed still in the time of classical Athens. But the myths about Thebes a lot of them have to do with issues of succession and who who owns the space, who owns the land in Greece, who is the rightful ruler. Um, the, the Theban mythological cycle starts with an idea of Cadmus as a settler who comes in from far away from Phoenicia and founds a city in Boeotia, which is Thebes. And then there are over over the various generations, there are multiple different succession crises in Thebes. 
one of the big stories is about Thebes as a city which has seven gates and seven brothers fight um, to attack the city to gain control of the city and all of them kill each other. So it, it also has many of these legends have to do with family members killing each other over their rights to um, control the city. The the topic for the, the two plays um, that we're talking about today is the line of Laius. Laius was a king of Thebes who was told that he shouldn't have have a son because his son, if he had any, would kill his father and marry his mother. But Laius got drunk and did have sex with his wife by mistake, by through being too drunk, to notice that he was doing it. And then what do you know? <laughs> he had a son called Oedipus. And we, know, we kind of know the rest of that. Um, and then the, 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 that same story also involves stories about the city of Thebes being besieged by a monstrous female character called the Sphinx, who asks the famous riddle of the Sphinx, um, what walks on four legs in the morning, two legs in, at noon and three at night. And of course, the answer is humanity, because we crawl and then we walk and then we hobble around with a stick. Um, and then the later stage of the Oedipus cycle that we get to with Antigone has to do with the children of Oedipus, the two brothers who are part of the story that I alluded to before of the, the brothers attacking the seven-gated city and killing each other. And then also what may be Sophocles' invention, the two sisters who parallel the two brothers and who one of whom insists that even her brother who fought against the city should be buried inside the city. And then the other sister who says, no, we must yield to the demands of the present time and the male rulers and not fight against what they've said. So the play of Oedipus is set over the course of a single day in a single place, the so-called tragic unities, although is that a real thing or is it just something that you sort of learn about? I mean, the Aristotle's poetics tells us these things about tragedy and the tragic flaw and fate and hubris and sort of having learned a little bit about about this idea of greek tragedy and we come to it with these ideas is that a fair representation of some of the things that aristotle says to start with mm. and even if it is is it a fair description of of a greek tragedy mm. I mean, there's the hero he's got his tragic flaw he's hubristic against the gods and then but fate has its way and there's the revelation <laughs> and the turning point and <laughs> Yes, it sort of implies a kind of formula to them. It implies a formula, which obviously yes. within you know, you know within the restrictions of the the staging and all the rest of it. But they aren't formulaic in that way, are they? They aren't formulaic. So I mean, maybe just to sort of unpack the some of what comes from where. So Aristotle is writing a good long time after any of these plays were being put on. And Aristotle's account of what tragedy is and should be is very much informed by his philosophy, right? It's very much informed by an idea that everything has a telos, everything should have a purpose, and there should be a taxonomy to everything. And of course, he's also, in a way, coming to um, the study of poetics from the study of biology and from the idea that we can create this taxonomy of the natural world and of and of the of the whole world and it will include a taxonomy of, of drama but that's actually not the primary focus and then out of Aristotle's taxonomy um, in the 17th and 18th century French neoclassicists theoreticians and dramatists people like Voltaire like the, that sort of time and era created this quite different um, sort of going much further idea about the unities of time and, and space which doesn't come in Aristotle but comes in the later reception of Aristotelian ideas that there should be an art of poetry and, and the, there should be these formulaic rules. 
Um, and then there's a sort of further later stage of, of the formulaicizing of Athenian tragedy that comes in the sort of start of the, of the 20th century with various studies of Shakespeare that then get put back onto um, Greek drama, which include this idea of the tragic flaw, um, which I think, I think first becomes popularized in Bradley's study of Shakespearean tragedy, the idea that there's something fatally flawed about Hamlet and Othello, which then sort of gets put back onto Oedipus. So maybe that's a sort of roundabout way of saying, I don't think we should assume that these terms that we may have learned in high school, like the tragic flaw, actually have much to do with anything in Sophocles. The tragic flaw comes from a misreading of Aristotle's Poetics, where Aristotle talks about an idea that, that he has, which comes from his ethics, that tragedy ought to, ought to produce pity and fear in the audience, and that it's going to do that only if the protagonist is medium good not too bad and then coming to a successful outcome because that's supposedly going to be disgusting and not too good and then having a terrible downfall for his, from his own fault because somehow that's also going to be awful. But he should be a little bit better than us and his downfall, if there is going to be a downfall or the reversal of fortune, either from good to bad or the other way around, should come about through some kind of mistake and a mistake is hamatia. Thanks for listening to this extract from Among the Ancients, a close reading series from the London Review of Books. To listen to the full episodes and all our other close reading series, sign up to our close reading subscription. Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description.